Hey, so my name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here at Renaissance and really grateful to kick off Holy Week with you all. So if you know me, uh, you know that I have started and stopped more things than I can remember. There was a fourth grade where I had a pretty promising clarinet career and um, that abruptly ended. I don't know what happened to that. I have started and stopped more books than I can remember. If you hear me quote a book, then chances are I haven't read the whole thing. I've read the two chapters that I needed to get to get to the quotes. Now, I finished some, but I started and stopped so many books and that like in the moment, I was really enjoying it. But sometimes I just feel like I don't have the follow through to always finish. I've also started and stopped uh, different things in my life. A couple years ago, I was having some health issues and I decided that I was going to go on a raw vegan diet. My wife said, Jordan, why don't you just stop eating fried chicken? I was like, no. <laughs> We're going all the way. We're going raw vegan for a month. And you'll never guess, man, I, I made it 12 hours. Uh, <laughs> and I found myself in Chipotle. Uh, I got a vegetarian bowl, though, so. Uh, I've started and stopped careers. I was an attorney before this. Um, I've started and stopped so many dif different things in my life. I started and stopped spiritual disciplines and practices, things that I was hoping would bring me closer to God. I've started reading plans in January, and with all good intention, I wanted to read through the Bible in a year, and by the time I got to about February 9th, I trailed off a little bit. I died somewhere in the desert of Deuteronomy, and I never, <laughs> I never made it out. Now, y'all are laughing at me, but I know this much to be true about you you have started and stopped a lot of things in your life. The list of different things that you have started with good intentions to finish and stopped, they're pretty long. Here's the good news that I want us to consider today. We're going to look at a scripture that lays out one really amazing point. God is not like us. God is not fickle. Scripture says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God finishes everything that God starts. Don't take my word for it. Look at the scripture. It'll be on the screens uh, to, to your left and to your right. Paul is uh, an apostle and a man who wrote about two-thirds of the New Testament. And he says this one scripture that has been a source to me of joy and refreshment and nourishment over the past two decades of my life following Jesus. And here's what Paul says. I am confident of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Let me say that again. I am confident of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul is informing us on a monumental truth that if it seeps into the depths of your soul, it will change everything about you. God finishes everything that God starts. And from that, we can derive a real, firm confidence. And that's my goal for us today, that we can walk out of these doors with a little bit more swagger, a little bit more confidence, not in yourself, not in your ability, not in your understanding, not in your willpower, not in your determination, not in your community, not in your church, not in your parents, not in your heritage, not in your education, not in your bank account, but in him, in a person who you are connected to, who is in you. Now, we've been in a series on the Holy Spirit and looking at this truth that God lives on the inside of us. 
And that truth is that God himself is anchored to us. And the source of our Christian confidence for everybody who has placed their faith in Christ, the source of your confidence should be in him, that God has given us his Holy Spirit. And God finishes everything that God starts. You know, years ago when I was young and I had a lot of hair and I was, uh, I was pretty reckless in my life, I went skydiving. And skydiving is a terrible decision for anybody considering doing it. <laughs> we were in a plane, and there's this like little propeller plane, and they said, at 10,000 feet, we're going to open up the door, and we're going to start jumping. And we got up on the plane, and there was this glass door on the plane, and we get to 10,000 feet, and they just flung that joint up like, <laughs> and 10,000 feet, for comparison, I was on the plane yesterday, 10,000 feet is normally when they turn the Wi-Fi on. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> 10,000 feet is when the snack cart starts to come out. 10,000 feet is not when you're supposed to be thinking about jumping out of the plane. So they throw up the glass door, and wind is rushing into the plane. And I knew this was my last time doing it, so I got the whole photography, videography package. And there's a cameraman. There's a cameraman who's just hanging on to the outside of the plane, and he just lets go. I was like, oh, nah, he's, <laughs> he's wilding. And then when we were on the ground, um, I was jumping tandem, and I've never been as happy to have a grown man strapped to my back. <laughs> when you're 10,000 feet in the air, I was like, are we together? Are we strapped? Check again. Now, my confidence was not in my ability or training because Lord knows if I would have been by myself, as soon as I would have jumped out, I would have just passed out, just <laughs> pancaked into the ground. The only reason I got up and nervously walked towards the edge of that plane and foolishly jumped out was because of a conversation I had on the ground. I was talking to the man who we were going to do the tandem jump with, and he says, Jordan, I have over a thousand jumps. Here's a picture of my daughter. I'm going to read her bedtime stories tonight. The source of my confidence was not in Jordan. The source of my confidence was not in a 30-second training video that I watched before we went up. The source of my confidence was in a person who I was attached to. I knew that if I pass out, he's going to pull a lever and we're going to make it down safely. Now, I think that story illustrates and illuminates a, a point in my life. Too often in my life, I have felt unsure and shaken and a loss of confidence and a lack of confidence. And I think it's just because I was putting the confidence in the wrong thing. I was putting the confidence in my willpower. Y'all have done this before. You've started out on a journey with Jesus and you have determined that you were going to be a certain way. But then something happens and you fail to meet your own expectations. And then what? You lose confidence. Other times, I have banked on my ability to reason and to understand different things, but I've hit a limit to my own understanding. I've been in situations that were bigger than me, things that I couldn't control, things that I didn't fully understand or comprehend, and when I hit those moments, I just felt out of place, and I think it's because my confidence was in the wrong thing. Now, unfortunately, also, I've had confidence in other people, religious leaders and other people in my church community who they failed me. And I felt myself shaken, sometimes almost to the core, and I realized in hindsight that, yes, it's disappointing when a brother or sister in the faith fails you. It's always sad, it's grievous, 
These are things that must be lamented, prayed through, and processed in community. However, I realized that they were such a blow to me because they were the source of my confidence. And when the ladder that I had hitched my life to against them, when they fell, I fell. And so scripture in Philippians is trying to point us away from confidence in yourself, in your understanding, or your circumstances. There's another scripture in Philippians later on in chapter 3 where Paul says this, Yo, if anyone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now, when Paul says flesh, he's not talking about anything sexual or anything like that. He's talking about the entirety of his person. He's saying, if anybody thinks that you have reasons to be confident in yourself, I have more than you do. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. And here's what he says. But everything, not some things, everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. Now, Paul's trophy list is something that to his crowd, to his audience in Philippi, they would have understood this to be Paul putting out the dopest credentials imaginable. He is saying, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Now, this was a tradition for Jews that Jesus himself would have gone through of the people of Israel, and he was from the tribe of Benjamin, which is one of the dopest tribes out of all of them. He was saying, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. Pharisees were notorious for their extremely strict adherence to the law. As for righteousness based on the law, he says, yo, I was faultless. You couldn't have found a fault in what I was doing. And still, everything that I was doing, it's all garbage. It wasn't worth anything. Compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ, Now, Paul has all of these accomplishments, and yet he has no confidence in himself, no confidence in his knowledge, his willpower, his consistency, and he's trying to point our eyes away from the things that we can accumulate or the things that we can earn on our own and to have a real confidence, not in ourselves, but in in God. Now, it's also interesting the setting in which Paul writes this letter. So Paul writes this letter in jail. So Paul is like Akon. They won't let me out. He's locked up. And Paul says, as he is in prison, now Paul is a pastor and a church planter, and he goes all around to these different cities and all these different churches that he's helped to start. And the very purpose that Paul has given his life to for the last number of decades, he's not doing any of it. He's chained to a guard, unable to do anything that he has uh, wanted to do. And yet he's still boasting in this confidence because his confidence is not in his circumstances. Now, I'll confess to you all, one of the biggest challenges I I, I sense in myself is to have a circumstantial faith that when life is good, God is good. When life is bad, I don't know that where my faith is. So this is so important because of this. Where your confidence comes from determines when it runs out. Where your confidence comes from, if it's in yourself, if it's in your community, if it's in your bank account, wherever it is, where your confidence comes from will determine when it runs out. In other words, the source of your confidence will determine the strength of it. And so I really want us thinking about um, what a real confidence in in God looks like. So we can say, like Paul, being confident of, of this, that he who started a good work will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. 
Paul is letting us know that God never starts anything he doesn't finish. God perseveres. What God has begun in your life, you do not need to fear that God will drop it halfway. Your confidence should not be in yourself, your faith, your ability in any of these things, but on a God who leads us and who will certainly lead us home. How much differently would your prayers be if you were fully convinced that God who started a good work in you will complete it? When you find yourself in dizzying and um, confusing parts of the journey of faith, how much would it change your prayer life? How much would it change your anxiety level if you fully believe that God never stops in the middle? God finishes everything that he starts. And so these are expectations that I want us to have. You can expect that God will finish what he has started in you. Now, one of the things that I've worked hard uh, in my relationships to do is to have really good relationships. And here's a freebie for you today. My goal is that all of us walk around with really great expectations of other people in our lives, and certainly also with God. Now, I have found that it's impossible to be in a good, thriving relationship with someone if you both have or one of you has bad expectations of the other person. So take this for what it's worth. You can apply this to your boss. You can apply this to your roommate, uh, a significant other, your parents, your children. Here is how I want you thinking about expectations. That expectations, in order for them to be valid in your life, they need to first be conscious. You need to think about, what am I expecting this person to do? Now, one of the things I've found to be pretty funny in a lot of relationships that um, people are trying to navigate, they go into a relationship not even knowing what they expect the other person to do. And you don't find out that, they, that they've gone beneath your expectations until they made you mad one day. So first and foremost, as adults, we really want to be the type of people who think about what am I actually expecting and not just stop there, that valid expectations need to be communicated. You need to let people know what it is that you're expecting of them. And let me give y'all a free tidbit that's going to save you so much relational heartache. It is a lie from the pit of hell that the other person should just know. You don't even know half of the time. And what we want to do is shortcut our maturity and put burdens on someone else that don't belong on their shoulders. If we're going to be functionally thriving, healthy adults, we need to communicate what our expectations are of other people. Now, not only do our expectations need to be conscious that we've thought about them, we've communicated these things, but they also got to be realistic. Like, what has the other person done to show you that they can actually do what you're asking them to do? My four-year-old now is in a time of life where he wants to do everything by himself. So if he asks for juice in the kitchen, that means he's going to walk those 30 feet from the kitchen to the living room, shaking that glass the entire way. Now, it would be foolish of me to pour him a glass of apple juice to the top and expect him to walk to the living room without dropping anything. Because nothing in his life has ever shown me that he has a steady hand. (laughs) But he showed me the opposite. He showed me that he cannot manage that. So I put a little drop in the cup and I walk behind him with a jar of apple juice. They need to be realistic. Now, I want to give a quick caveat as this pertains to God. A lot of times, many of us in this room have felt the pain of an unmet expectation with God. That you have held God to an expectation that wasn't realistic. Here's what I have done. You might have done this in your life. I have held God to the expectation that if I try hard and do good, my life will be good. That if I try really hard and if I do good, 
then my life will be amazing, actually. But there are moments in life where we've all felt this, that you tried hard, you've done the right thing, and life has not given you the right thing in return. And what I've felt in those moments, the initial feeling that I have felt is real disappointment with God. But as I turn back to the pages of Scripture, I realize, like, yo, Jordan, that's, that's not realistic. Jesus has allowed tremendous suffering to those who he loves. If you experience, and if you are right now experiencing difficulties, challenges, suffering in your life, um, it's not because God doesn't love you, and it's not because this is something that's foreign to you. Sometimes God uses difficulties and hardships and suffering as the very instrument to work inside of you in your life. And it's not because he doesn't love you, it's because, it's because he does love you. In Hebrews, it says that every father, every parent disciplines those who, who they love. And if you're not being disciplined, sometimes through the fires of life, then you're not a child. In the moments where I have wanted to curse God for what God has allowed in my life, I've had to sit back and take a step back and say, God, it's not realistic for me to expect you to, make, to pave my life on a golden street, to keep everything away from me. Because if God were to do that, it would actually be unloving for him. So if you find yourself in that place, a hard place right now, then just know that God has something for you in that. Nothing in your life is meaningless, and nothing in your life is without him and his presence. So with other people, though, they, our relationships and our expectations of them need to be realistic. And the last one, they have to be agreed upon. These are not demands that you're making other people do. These are expectations that you're hoping, you're wishing for people to do. And uh, not everybody can meet the expectations we have, and we need to grieve some of those unmet expectations. And here's why I brought this up. It is totally appropriate for you to hold God to the standard that God will finish everything that he has started in your life. It is valid. It is good. It is helpful. It is so nourishing for you to believe, for you to stand on God's word and say, God, I am going to stand into trust that you are going to complete everything that you started. Not because I'm good, but because you're good. And so I want to leave us with three points um, that flesh out a little bit what I mean when I say God finishes what he starts. Number one, God starts his work in us through the Holy Spirit. Christianity, properly understood, is that God is always the one who initiates. And you and I are the people who respond to God's gracious acts that have already been done in advance. And uh, in, in prior to, I'm always really skeptical about people when I meet them. I'll be at like Harlem Tab or something and someone will find out I'm a pastor and they start telling me their life and their faith story. And I put the chicken down. I'm like, here we go again. <laughs> I'm just joking. I, I meet some of y'all out in public. Um, but I'm always really skeptical when I meet someone and they say to me, well, you know, I, I've studied religion and I studied Islam and Buddhism and, and Judaism, I, and I, I read some Christian stuff, and I said, yeah, this is it. I'm going to be a Christian. What that does is that places them at the center of their faith. It places them and their reason as the reason that they are a Christian. Properly understood, Christianity is not something that one day you evaluate and came to a conclusion that this is the best thing for you. Christianity does involve reason. You should think about your faith. You should think about your life. But Christianity says something far more profound and beautiful than that that is meant to give us encouragement and hope. Listen to Ephesians 1, 3 to 6 and 11 and 12. This is the same author, Paul, and he's writing, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us 
with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. Check out verse four. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. In him, we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will, so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. Now, this is not just Paul. All throughout the New Testament, authors and Jesus let us know that Christianity, properly understood, is not about you seeking God. It's about a God that seeks after us. Jesus says in John 6 that no one can come to me unless the Father that sent me draws him. Later in Romans, Paul says for the, uh, that we are foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. And that us sitting in this room, you listening, you coming to faith, anybody that comes to faith is not because of yourself. It is because of the drawing that God has done in our lives. And we are merely responders to God's gracious invitation. So God starts his work in us through the Holy Spirit. And this is why this is so, so important, because one of the greatest sources of my discouragement has been the frantic pace of trying to keep up something in my life, feeling like I was going to lose out on what God was doing in my life. And I've lost so much joy. I've lost so much peace. I've had so much anxiety because I put myself at the beginning. And scripture is meant to strip us of that, of that weight. You will finish because God started it, not you. Number two, God didn't just start the work in you. God continues his work in you and in, in us through the Holy Spirit. Listen to these verses in verses 13 and, and 14 of Ephesians 1. It says, in him you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Now, I want you to look in that phrase in verse 14, if you can leave that scripture up on the screen. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance. So check this out. If you grew up and your parents were throwing stuff on layaway, uh, this is not that type of down payment that you may or may not get it, or you might get it in a very long time. This down payment from God is the first installment on what's coming, a reminder that we'll get everything God has planned for us, a praise and a life with him together. Scripture tells us we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, and God continues his work in you through the Holy Spirit. The source of your joy, your confidence, you know, as a pastor, I meet with so many people who are discouraged in their own spiritual journey. I want to say two things to you. One, discouragement is a sign that the Holy Spirit is alive in you. When you notice, when you are discouraged, when you notice distance, that is the first work of the Holy Spirit alerting us to that distance. Because what would truly be discouraging is if you drifted and didn't notice where you've gone to. So first and foremost, discouragement with your journey is a sign that the Holy Spirit is there inside of you, not to condemn you, but to call you closer to him. And secondly, um, as we think about the, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, 
It's meant to point our, way, our eyes away from ourselves on, and on Jesus. You know, last week we had a baptism class, and um, every time we have people considering baptism, when I'm talking to people, one of the things that has been a theme that has come out consistently is people say, well, I don't know if I'm ready. And when I dig a little bit beneath the surface, but underneath that, I think what people are still trying to do is they're trying to hold on to their own strength, their own understanding as the litmus test as to whether or not they will be a faithful Christian, as opposed to letting go and saying, I'm transferring my faith from myself to him. And so God continues his work in us through the Holy Spirit. But we are not robots. We are not computers that are programmed to do something. We do have a work and a part to play in this, in what God the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives. And I want to select three themes um, from the New Testament very briefly that talk about what it means for us to, to do our work. And that work is to not resist, quench, or grieve the Holy Spirit. To not resist, to quench, to grieve the Holy Spirit. So God starts his work in you through the Holy Spirit. God continues to work in us through the Holy Spirit. And our work is to not resist, to quench, or to grieve the Holy Spirit. The first word resist comes from Acts 7 and 51, where a man named Stephen is preaching a sermon. And he says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your ancestors did, you do also. Now, this word for resist comes in a time where Stephen is talking to a group of religious officials who were really struggling with disbelief. They just did not believe the fundamental claims of who Jesus was, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And, and what Stephen is saying in his message to them is that to a certain extent, not that, we are, not that we're more powerful than God. God is sovereign, and God the Holy Spirit could do whatever he wants to do. But he's saying we stifle, we minimize the work of the Holy Spirit when we resist him. And disbelief and unbelief are some of those things. So I do want to very quickly, though, make a difference between the type of hard-hearted disbelief and the normal unbelief that we may all struggle with. So one of my favorite scriptures is in Mark 9, 23 to 25. It comes at a time where Jesus is uh, surrounded by a man whose son has epilepsy. And he comes to Jesus with all of the vigor of a parent who is desperate. And he brings his son to Jesus. He says, Jesus, if there's anything you can do to help my son, please do it. And Jesus looks at the man and says, all things are possible to him who believes. The man utters a line to Jesus that I have said a hundred times in my life. I believe, but help my unbelief. There's a natural and healthy part of faith that struggles between belief and unbelief. And that's not what I'm talking about here when I'm saying resisting the, the Holy Spirit. I'm talking about a chronic rejection of the truth that God wants to plant into our hearts. That is resist, resisting the Holy Spirit. The second one is quenching the Holy Spirit. First uh, Thessalonians 5 and 19 says, do not quench the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. Now, if you've ever been around uh, a fire pit and you've had logs burning and different things, you know that there are things you can do to fan that flame and there are things you can do to extinguish the flame as well. So I think what the analogy that Paul is using here in 1 Thessalonians 5.19 is to say, our role is to fan the flame that God is blowing, that God has created in our lives. You and I cannot create the flame of the Holy Spirit in our lives, but we can fan that flame. We should try to do every legitimate thing we can do to fan the flame of God in our lives. And we have things like these podcasts that are about to drop, and my real fear is that people just take it or leave it, that we have scriptures. We're trying to center ourselves around God's word this week, 
in anticipation of Holy Week to think about all the things that Jesus has done for us. And I think quenching the Spirit is just minimizing the, the things that are meant to fan the flame of God in our lives. And the last one is grieving the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4 and 30, it says, And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. I love that word grieve here in Ephesians 4 and 30. Uh, One of the best ways I know how to talk about this is essentially what I think Paul is saying is that it's, it's frustrating. It's making the Holy Spirit who lives on the inside of everybody who has placed their faith in him, it's making them uncomfortable in the crib. My wife and I, our cousin moved in with us from Jamaica, and um, she's getting her master's, and free babysitting, hey, praise the Lord. And um, <laughs> there was like this closet in our apartment that had not been t- touched since Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. <laughs> there was just stuff that we have accumulated from our lives that just lived in this one closet. And we tolerated it for like years, to be perfectly honest. But when our cousin was moving up, we knew that since someone else was moving in, we had to address the clutter and the chaos that would have made it impossible for her to thrive in our lives. So someone else moving in actually was the motivation for us to clean some stuff up. Now, the Bible tells us that you and I, we are the temple of the living God. It's not a building. It's not a church. It's not an edifice. It's you. It's, it's me. As a pastor, listen, I get it. I've lived a lot of life. I've had my fair share of struggles. One of my fears, though, is that you and I would develop a version of faith that tolerates any and everything in our lives. I mean, there's grace. Where sin abounds, grace even more abounds, of course. But for some of us, we're testing the limit of how much sin can abound in our lives. And in some ways, we're disregarding the cost of what it took to pay for our redemption. In 1 Peter, Peter says, don't you know that you weren't redeemed by, by worthless things like silver or gold, but by the precious blood of the Lamb? God gave us Jesus for our sins. One of my favorite quotes is from an old English preacher, Charles Spurgeon. He said, I will not trifle with the sin that killed my best friend. And so for you, I don't know everything that's going on in your life, but I would hope and pray that all of us who, who claim to follow Jesus, we would not just tolerate things in our lives that we know are not pleasing to God. We wouldn't laugh it off. We would take really serious uh, introspection out of our lives to address these things. And so I want us to consider this last scripture as we are about to move into a time of worship. Everything that God wants to do in your life really does start with an invitation. That God is inviting us to experience him in new ways. He's inviting us to be something different. And God calls us to faith. He calls you to move in faith. But God is so good, he will meet you in your failures. He calls us to faith but he meets us in failure. Matthew 14, it's about Jesus walking on water. And scripture starts with Jesus walking on water toward uh, the boat where his disciples were afraid and huddled up. And it says, immediately Jesus spoke to them, have courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter answered him, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. And climbing out of the boat, Peter started walking on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he, Peter, saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, pay attention to that, immediately Jesus reached out his hand, caught hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? 
Now, in just a moment, we're going to have a period, a moment of contemplation where I want us thinking about what is the invitation that Jesus has for you this week? What is the invitation that Jesus has for you this week? Jesus will call us all to faith, to move, to step out of our comfort zone, of our boats, and to walk on uncharted territory just because he said to come. For some of you, it's doing something that is extremely uh, fearful for you. For some of you, it's starting a journey in, in therapy. For some of you, it's confessing something to someone that you've never uh, had the strength to confess because you were worried about your image and how people would receive you. For others of you, it's a myriad of different things, but there's always invitations. And here's the thing. Jesus calls you to meet him in faith that there will be uncertainty about what's going to happen when you stick your foot out. There will never be a 1,000% guarantee that that ground that, you're, that he's calling you to walk onto can hold you. But he can hold you. He calls us to faith. Here's the beauty about Jesus. Scripture says that Peter saw the wind. He got caught up. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand, not in judgment, but to save him. Jesus calls you to walk in faith, but he will meet you in your failures. Let that be an encouragement for us today. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I pray that you would give us a bold, bold, bold confidence that everything you start, you finish. And that includes us. Lord, that we do not need to be afraid of your invitations to us as if they are for our harm, but rather that they are for our good. Even if it's a scary thing that you're calling us to do, even if it's a deeper journey that you're calling us to take, Lord, I pray that we would have so much confidence, not in ourselves or in our ability, but in you. We thank you. We love you. We worship you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.